If you want to open up your copy of Scripture with me and turn to John chapter 11. We look now to God's holy and inspired word as we come each week to hear what God has to say to us um, as we gather together to worship him. And we've seen in John chapter 11 that we are working toward, and we'll get there next week, bright and early, we're working toward this seventh and climactic um, sign that our Lord and that John records in John's gospel, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And we've seen that um, this is a great event, and it's foreshadowing not only the resurrection of Christ on the third day from the grave, but also our resurrection, and we've talked about these things. But we've seen that before resurrection, there must be death. Before resurrection, there must be death. What did Jesus say? You know, a seed must fall into the ground and die before it can bear fruit. And so we see that before resurrection, there must be death. Death, And we've seen in the weeks leading up to this that Jesus, when he finds out that his friend Lazarus is death, the one whom he loves, when he finds out that he is dead, uh, that he's ill, he delays. He doesn't go right to Lazarus. He doesn't heal him from a ways off. He stays where he is and he remains where he was. And he tells his disciples that this illness does not lead to death, but it is ultimately for the glory of God. And last week, we looked at Martha, who meets with our Lord, and in her sorrow and in her suffering, Christ points her to himself. He he tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. He points her to himself as the source of not only eternal life, but future glorious resurrection. But this week, we will see that our Lord himself is not immune from the suffering and sorrow, from the pain of grief and loss that we experience in our human nature. That while many people love the Gospel of John because it so clearly and explicitly talks about the divinity of Christ, right? His divine nature. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see in our passage this week that our Lord is not only truly God, but truly man. We see this week his true humanity brought to the forefront. That we'll see in our passage this week, our Lord is not only deeply moved and greatly troubled, but is even brought to weeping at the effects of death. That the eternal Son of God, as we just confessed, the one who is one with the Father, co-equal, co-eternal, that that Son of God assumed our nature in the incarnation. He assumed our weakness, our frailty, and even, even our suffering for the purpose of saving, sanctifying, and redeeming us from our sin and corruption. And that's what we're going to look at and talk about this morning. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll be looking this morning at verses 28 through 37 of John chapter 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. When she, that is Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Gospel of John, where we see not only our Lord's true divinity, but his true humanity on full display. And we pray this morning that as we look to your holy and infallible word, we would be comforted this morning in our pain and suffering, that we would see the need for the incarnation, for the one that would suffer in our place, and that we would come to rest on Christ as he has given to us in the gospel alone. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if any of you have been to a funeral or attended one recently, you have seen the effects of suffering and death in our world. You have seen the effects, the raw emotions of pain, of loss, of grief, sometimes very controlled and calm, and sometimes explicit and uncontrolled. And this is very much what we see in our passage today. We see first that Mary, who was formerly sitting when this interaction with Martha happened in the passage before this, Mary, like her sister, is grieving the loss of their brother, Lazarus. He has fallen ill, he has died, he has been in the tomb for four days, and they are grieving the loss of their dear brother. And we see in this passage the great pain and the grief that they're experiencing, the suffering and the sorrow that is very real to them and that they are undergoing. And we, when we see in our passage this morning that Mary, who had remained in the house previously, is now told by her sister Martha that Jesus has arrived and he has called for her. She rises quickly and she goes to him, and we see in our passage that very providentially the Jews who were there consoling her and mourning with her, go out with her to where Jesus is. And we see in verse 32, she says these words to our Lord as she she falls at his feet. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She falls at his feet, weeping over the death of her brother, and says the exact same words that her sister Martha said in the passage previously, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. 
And for those of you that were here with us last week, we spoke about this, that her response is one of belief and unbelief. (laughs) It is belief, it is trust in the Lord mixed with unbelief. It is trust and faith in Christ, right? She's acknowledging that he's powerful and could have saved Lazarus from death, but it is mixed with uncertainty in this frowning providence of God. Why did this happen? Why weren't you here? If you were here, things would have been different. And we spoke about how oftentimes our response is the same as hers. When we have a frowning providence in our own life, we often ask and pray, why did this happen? And if the Lord would have been there, maybe things would have been different. But we see, and we see kind of very clearly, especially when it's someone else, that this is fallen human nature. That at the fall into sin, death entered the world, and through sin and death came corruption at every level. Every level of us is corrupted. Our confession says it like this, that we are wholly defiled in all of our functions and faculties, body and soul. So not just is there death and cancer and things like this, but there's also the corruption of our soul, of our will, of our ability to obey God and His commandments. And we see that even our emotions are affected by the fall into sin. Tainted with unbelief, selfish desires. Our emotions are not pure, they're not perfect. They have also been tainted by the fall into sin. And so it's easy to look at Mary and Martha and say, well, I could have done better than they did. You know, I would have, I would have answered more holy. That's not a word, but I would have answered better than them, right? I would have been totally trusting of the Lord. I wouldn't have said what they said, but we know that that's not true. (laughs) Our response is often like that of Martha and Mary. And so we see that we're no better than them. We're no better than Mary and Martha. And one of the reasons, and I think we'll see this today, that this passage is in Holy Scripture, is that we see in this passage that one has to come to take upon himself our sinful, not our sin, but our nature, our, our human nature, so that he might sanctify, save, and redeem that which was corrupted. And we'll see that that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ taking upon himself our nature. And that sort of brings us to the second part this morning. We see in verse 33, the man of sorrows. We see in verse 33 that Jesus sees Mary weeping. We learn there that that she is indeed falling at his feet in her grief and sadness. He sees her weeping, and he sees the Jews around her that are weeping, and it says that he is deeply moved and greatly troubled in his spirit. You could even translate this word as he was indignant. Some of the older translations said, groaned in his spirit. And so the question is, why these words? Notice that there's no I am statement. Martha got, I am the resurrection and the life. There's no such statement here. Only these words that he is deeply moved and greatly troubled. And this might seem puzzling to us. Why is this his response? Why is his response to Mary's weeping to be deeply moved and greatly troubled? Two things to note. 
First, we see here the human nature of our Lord highlighted. We see here the human nature of our Lord highlighted. That in the incarnation, in the taking on of flesh, the Son assumed our nature, both body and soul. Both body and soul. He had a real, true human soul. That one that was subject to passions, one that could be deeply moved and troubled, that had emotions that would come upon him. And so we see here this picture and the, the importance of the, res, the incarnation. That the Son, the second person of the triune God, as we just confessed, assumed our nature with all the essential properties of it, both body and soul. And that in taking on flesh, He takes to Himself our very nature, humanity. There was an ancient heresy called docetism that would say Jesus just seemed like he was human, right? He just appeared to be human, but he wasn't truly human. And we see in our passage, this is confirmed that that's not true. Our Lord really and truly had a human nature, to, took to himself, as our ancient creeds say, he became like unto us in all things, yet without sin. So he, he is like us in every way, except without sin. But something about this event caused our Lord to be greatly troubled. And the question still remains, what was it that troubled him? Why was he greatly troubled? And why was he moved in his soul? Why does he become indignant, as some translations say? And I think there are several things going on here. Many commentators have many different ideas about why are these words used? Why are these words used to describe our Lord? I think we see several things here. I think Jesus sees the hypocrisy of some of the Jews that are there and is indignant at their hypocrisy. Some of these Jews would have been paid to come there and weep. They would have been wailing loudly, trying to stir up people into this kind of frenzy of weeping. And he knows their hearts. He sees their ingenuine grief. And he sees ultimately their unbelief, these kind of professional mourners that were paid to wail loudly and lament. He sees through their ingenuine grief and is rightly troubled by it. I think he also sees the weakness of Mary and Martha's faith. He may have been troubled partially by their doubting sorrow, their lack of trust in his word, right? We saw that there is belief in their words, but there is also some unbelief. He had been telling them about the hope that they have in life and in death, and they still remain doubtful of his promises. But I think most pointedly what we see in these words and why these words are to use as I think we see most clearly his anguish over death. His anguish over death. We see that death has taken his dear friend, the one whom he loved, and not only his friend, but the brother of his friends, Mary and Martha. Not only is he grieving and sympathizing with Mary and Martha in their grief, but he sees the great sorrow that death has caused. The enemy of, of humanity, death itself. He sees the tears that they are shedding, and he is moved. And we read in verse 35 
that our Lord is even brought to tears when we see that it says Jesus wept. He's sorrowful over the effects of death and moved by the pain that it caused those around him. But we see that our Lord's grief is both like our grieving and yet unlike our grieving. Because we know as the incarnate Son of God, He is grieving perfectly, sinlessly, and righteously. He is grieving perfectly, sinlessly, and righteously. He's not wailing aimlessly like those Jews that were paid to come and mourn. He's not grieving untrustingly as possibly Mary and Martha were. Not overcome by his emotions and passions, but perfectly and sinlessly mourning the effects that death has caused. Or as one pastor said, Jesus is sanctifying grief. He is sanctifying grief. His righteous human soul responds righteously. (laughs) His righteous human soul responds righteously to the effects of death. I love what Augustine said. He said, why did Christ weep except to teach us how to weep? Why did Christ weep except to teach us how to weep? Our mourning, our sorrow, our grief is mixed with sin. It's mixed with unbelief. Doubting God and His promises, looking to ourselves and the things of this earth, right? When we face sorrow, when we face trial, we look inward, we look to ourselves, we look how we can kind of numb ourselves with anything that this world has to offer. Our Lord is not that way. Christ wept perfectly, not only showing His true humanity, but teaching us how to mourn and not sin, (laughs) how to mourn righteously. And this is really where I think we see the glory of this passage and the glory of our Savior, who is our two-natured Redeemer, very God of very God and very man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Son of God, taking upon our nature, body and soul, He did this so that He could sanctify, save, and redeem us and our nature that had been corrupted by the fall. Or as Athanasius said, that which has not been assumed has not been redeemed. If Christ doesn't assume our nature, he cannot redeem it. And so our salvation in many ways depends on Christ having a true human nature. And so you're thinking, why, is it, why are all these heresies matter? Why are we talking about this? It's essential to what we believe about salvation. That the Son does not, that which the Son does not take to Himself, He cannot save. And He came to redeem our nature, our humanity, grieving and our sorrow. This is why the incarnation is necessary and very important. But a question might come into our minds at this point if we're thinking about this passage critically. Because as we confess this morning, God in Himself is not subject to passions. God in Himself is not subject to passions. This is what we call the doctrine of divine impassibility. Divine impassibility. And that's the doctrine that God is not moved by anything outside of Himself. For you and I, we are led by our passions and our emotions, 
And what that means is that something from outside of us influences us and causes us to feel a way we didn't feel before, right? Maybe if you fell in love, you saw somebody passing by, and you, <laughs> you went from a state of not being in love to a state of <laughs> being in love or whatever, right? Something outside of yourself caused you, moved you to this passion, to this new emotion. That is not the case with God. <laughs> he simply is love, justice, mercy. Those things don't, are not outside of him that come and influence him. He simply is those things. And so the question arises is how are these emotions and passions that we see displayed in our Lord, how are they proper to the person of the Son of God? How are they proper to the person? How are they appropriate for God to have? Or we could ask it in these ways. How can the one who neither tires nor grows weary, how can he sleep on the Sea of Galilee in a boat with his disciples? How can the one who is self-sufficient, say, in need of nothing, how can he grow hungry and cry out on the cross, I thirst? How can the one who is without passions and totally immovable, how can he be moved to tears and weep in the passage that we see this morning? And the answer is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The incarnation of the second person of the Son of God. The eternal Son of God taking on flesh with all its weaknesses and infirmities yet without sin. Doing all of these things, not according to his divine nature, but according to his human nature, the only nature that it's proper to actually get tired, hungry, and weep. That is what we see in Holy Scripture. But the answer still remains, why? Why did Christ, why did the Son of God take upon himself our nature? And it's what we've been saying throughout this whole sermon is, to sanctify, save, and redeem us. We are sinful. <laughs> we are sinful. We are obedient to the passions of our flesh. Our emotions are tainted with sin and unbelief. At every point are we led to a new passion, led astray by our emotions. But in Christ's coming, even though He was subject to human passions and emotions, He did this all without sin. This is what Calvin has to say. If you compare Christ's passions with ours, they will differ as much as pure clean water flowing in a calm course differs from thick, muddy slime. <laughs> I love that quote. <laughs> if you compare his passions with ours, they will differ as much as clear water differs from thick, muddy slime. Christ's emotions and affections and passions were perfect, clear as crystal water. Ours are muddy. They're full of sin and unbelief. They are muddy and thick and slimy. <laughs> and if you've ever had a two-year-old, you've seen that, okay? Not only in them, but what it brings out in you, okay? Everything in this world brings out these sinful emotions from us because we're fallen, because we're tainted with sin and unbelief. But we see that in the fullness of time and in the mercy of God, Christ came to take our muddy, slimy, sin-stained nature and passions and redeem them. 
and redeem them and give us, as the promise of Jeremiah says, new hearts with new desires, with new affections, with His law written on our hearts. Not just, he didn't come just as an example to show us how to have perfect desires and affections, but he came as our mediator, as our representative, as our redeemer, as our federal head. Or as we read this morning in Isaiah 53, he came as the man of sorrows who is acquainted with our grief, doing everything that you and I could not perfectly so that he might redeem us. But we see in this passage, not all respond to this work of Christ in the same way. We see in verse 36 that some see his love and care for his friend and the deep sorrow that our Lord underwent, but others only respond in blind unbelief. We read in verse 37 that some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? There's no sorrow over the situation. They're not moved by the loss and sadness of Jesus' friend. They respond only in pride, arrogance, and blasphemous unbelief. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind save this man? Couldn't Jesus do it, right? Why is he weeping? If he's so powerful, why didn't he just save him? What blindness, what hardness of heart these people display. But we see as we look at all the scripture that this is really no different from what the chiefs, priests, and scribes will say to our Lord as he is being crucified on the cross. They cry out, In Matthew 27, he saved others, and yet he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe in him. This is a picture of unbelief. But we see in these words... The mocking and derision, the rejection and the despising that our Lord underwent as the suffering servant was not only during all his life as he felt the sorrow and pain of the sinful world, but it was most pointedly at the time of his sacrificial and substitutionary death as he suffered on the cross for our sins undergoing not only the mocking and derision of lawless men, but the wrath and justice of God that our sin deserved. As we sang this morning, tell me ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Justice being the wrath and justice of God. The suffering servant promised in Isaiah 53, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God for sinful people like you and me. 
that the greatest act of suffering in the world that has ever happened was on the cross 2,000 years ago. The perfect spotless lamb dying in our place, taking the judgment that we deserved so that we might be saved and our sinful nature redeemed. This is the work of our Lord. This is the gospel of Christ. This is the glory of the incarnation. And because of this, we can actually have hope this morning. We can actually have hope this morning because as we remember in the book of Hebrews, we're reminded that we have a great high priest who not only took upon himself our nature so that he can sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who was perfect in every way and without sin. (laughs) That we have a perfect mediator, a great high priest who knows our frailty. He remembers that we are dust. He's able, we're told, to sympathize with our weakness. We don't have one that's totally separate and distant from us. He knows our frailty. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, and He is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, yet He has no sin. And we read this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4. That he who was tempted to sin, even in his affections, in his emotions, in his grief, did not. And in, if you turn in a, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we read this. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we see that not only do we have a sympathetic high priest, but the response of this, brothers and sisters, is to run to the throne of grace. You and I are pretty messed up. (laughs) We're pretty messed up. Our emotions are messed up. Are, they're mixed up, just like Martha and Mary. Belief mixed with unbelief. Trusting in the Lord in times of suffering mixed with sinful trust in ourselves. And we could admit it. <laughs> we could admit that we fail. We fail to love the Lord in times of sorrow. We fail to trust Him and His providence. And our response as believers is not to double down. It's not to double down and try to justify our sin and say, well, I deserve to feel this way or I have the right to feel this way. That's what our world tells us. That's what society will tell us. But we're called as believers to look to Christ. Look to not only His perfect example, but His perfect mediation. And we are to run to this throne of grace saying, Lord, help me. (laughs) Lord, help me. Help me to think rightly about this trial. Help me to think rightly about the suffering that I'm going through. To trust you in the face of suffering and death and not myself. Help me to look to Christ. And we can be honest. We, when we go to the Psalms, we see sanctified responses to the Lord in times of suffering. We can cry out, I'm tired. I'm sad. I'm grieving. I'm mourning. I'm in pain. I'm facing death itself. And we can look to Christ and look to Him and run to the throne of grace and know that we have a Savior who will give us mercy and grace in our time of need. 
And we're also reminded in this passage that we can look even beyond this life to the life to come. And as we come to John's revelation at the end of Scripture, we come to Revelation chapter 21 where we see this picture of the end as we look to our great hope where there will be no more death. John writes this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is what we look forward to in the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection of our bodies where there'll be no death, no mourning, no pain, and every tear will be wiped away. This is what we look forward to this morning, and we thank the Lord for procuring this by His life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you this morning for sending the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who for us and for our salvation assumed to himself our natures with all of its infirmities and weaknesses, tasting death itself, being buried in the tomb, and suffering the death that our sin deserved on the tree despised and rejected by men and undergoing the wrath and justice of God that our sin deserved. Sanctifying in this great act our human nature and resurrecting from the grave so that we might have life with you forever. We thank you and praise you for your glorious gospel and we pray this morning that our hope would be in Christ our sympathetic high priest who knows our weakness, knows our frailty, remembers that we are dust and will give us mercy and grace to help in our greatest time of need. Help us to go to you in those times of weakness, resting on your gospel promises and looking to Christ and the gospel of Christ that strengthens and motivates us to live for you. We pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit this morning and that you would equip us for the work that you have for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.